Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Have you ever been on a hike, spied a wild berry, mushroom, or weedy plant and thought, huh, I wonder if I can eat that? Coming up this hour, we talk to local foragers who are passionate about identifying and eating the bounty found in nature. The founder of the Connecticut Foraging Club introduces us to the flavors of Queen Anne's Lace, Autumn Olives, and Chicken of the Woods. And consider us starstruck. Later in the show, I talk with an 81-year-old amateur mycologist from Hartford who had a species of mushroom named after her. And I thought I was a fun guy. Yeah, see what I did there? (laughs) But first, our guest Bun Lai is a chef and pioneer of the sustainable food movement. He's perhaps one of the best-known foragers, and not just in our state, but in the whole country. Mia Sushi in New Haven was the first sustainable sushi restaurant in the whole world. It closed in 2020. If you miss it, not to worry. Mia Sushi has become Mia's in the Woods, an educational and culinary experience at Bun's home in Woodbridge. Chef Bun Lai, welcome to Seasoned. Uh, Thank you, Marisol and Plum. We realized when we wanted to do a show about foraging, we would be foolish to talk to anyone else. (laughs) Well, no, thank you. (laughs) First of all, for people who don't know what foraging is, what is it exactly? Uh, It is going outdoors and collecting edible wild plants. But it's been a a popular pastime for decades now. There's Yield Gibbons who wrote a best-selling book many, many decades ago called Stalking the Wild Asparagus, I think. He was a legitimate celebrity back in those days from a foraging show. And here we are. My food experience starts with foraging. Uh, My mother grew up in the countryside of uh, southern Japan. And uh, back in those days, um, little Japanese girls would stay out of the sun to stay as white colored as possible. But uh, she looked like someone who was a different color altogether, you know? So, So she was an outdoor kid. And uh, so was I, and I was often really dark and uh, people would think that like I'm Polynesian or Hawaiian or Filipino, but I just like to be out all the time. And my mother would take us foraging back in those days. And when she would have a birthday or a special occasion, I would always bring her a burdock that I'd dig up. And it would be so meaningful too, because with burdock, the taproot is sometimes three feet long. Wow. So you got to dig three feet in order to get it. And you have to be patient. I'm ADHD riddled. So my impulse is to dig partly and then give it a tug. And you do that and you, you ruin the root because you want to bring this beautiful connected stem. You know. So I've been doing this foraging for a long time prior to uh, even Mia's. So with the closing of Mia Sushi, now we get Mia's in the woods. That's right. Which is uh, kind of a showcase of all of this wonderful foraging around our state that you've done. Part of the reason why I closed Mia's was that I just didn't think that I'd be able to stay healthy and continue working in the way that I was working, uh, especially in a brick and mortar situation. My mom had a stroke uh, about eight years ago, and we have very similar go, go, go personalities. We don't know how to turn it off. So I knew that I had to put a break on it. And I 
tried to imagine myself working in a completely different way where it was restorative for my spirit, for my body as well. I knew the one thing that made me feel great mentally, spiritually, physically was to be outdoors. So I wanted to cook outdoors. We transitioned into doing really intimate events during COVID in the space over here, and much of which is about foraging. Very cool. It's like a pop-up event. Kind of, but there's always something going on here. So the two things that I'm really passionate about are nature and humans. There's a lot of correlations uh, between biodiversity and nature and human diversity. So when you talk about human diversity, it's really uplifting of the society, especially if you uplift the diversity of that society. The same thing with uh, nature. The more diverse the plants and animals and microorganisms are in a specific ecosystem, the healthier that ecosystem is as well. So what I do with the cuisine that I've created in Sustainable Sushi is celebrate human diversity along with biodiversity. But both today and uh, throughout time uh, have been uh, attacked. As far as biodiversity, today we're in a period of mass extinction, but this time it's anthropomorphic, it's human created. The last time it was a meteor that caused it. As well, uh, human diversity is, is always being uh, under attack right. for a number of reasons, ideological reasons, but also uh, the encroachment of uh, modern culture. Uh, for example, there aren't many hunter-gatherer tribes anymore, and languages are quickly disappearing, um, along with indigenous knowledge, for example. So when I cook, I'm really interested in, for example, like how the Hadza eat. They're the last uh, indigenous culture that is a hunter-gatherer tribe, and they're not going to be around for much longer because um, there's ecotourism that they're a part of now. And as soon as you have contact with us, uh, then uh, traditional societies uh, quickly disappear. But the Hadza have the healthiest gut microbiome of any people. And the health of your microbiome is measured by the diversity of good bacteria that you have. And the diversity of good bacteria you have is directly correlated to eating a wide diversity of plants. And the Hadza eat mostly plants many, many different types of plants, all wild. Wild plants are exponentially more nutritious than cultivated plants and just a little bit of uh, wild meats. Hmm. So over here, my staff and I and my friends uh, who come and hang out every morning, um, we go foraging. And every morning we have 10 or 12 different types of wild plants that we make into a, a smoothie. And that's inspired by studies of microbiome health of their healthier cultures who are closer to nature. Wow. Well, I was going to ask, as you talk about these cultures, these indigenous cultures, and how much we can learn from them and how much we can learn to live sustainable lives by not destroying the, you know, the planet and the earth, how does that translate into what you're serving people that come to Mia's in the woods? For decades now, I've incorporated foraging. I've incorporated uh, wild plants and animals into our cuisine. The difference at Mia's is that I'm not interested so much in popular plant, a uh, wild plant um, species, for example, like ramps. People go crazy in the spring for ramps, but they're often over-harvested. So uh, in certain forests where people go and over-forest, uh, the ramps disappear altogether. Right. So for me, if I'm looking for something 
that's oniony, I won't use a ramp. I'll use like a, a wild onion that, that I'll find somewhere that's ubiquitous and that people don't really like to eat. Besides that, I'm trying to have the way I cook and my approach to cooking to be a culinary solution to environmental problems. The most destructive force in nature is the human appetite. We humans have eaten away many, many different types of species. So what can we do to aim that human appetite to species that are destructive? Well, let's, uh, instead of eating, for example, factory farmed cows, which are also bad for the environment and its production and also inhumane in so many different ways as well and unhealthy for our bodies. Why don't we eat another red meat like a nutria, you know, that is a herbivore uh, rodent in Louisiana and areas around there. It's like a big rat. It's the second biggest rodent. Yeah. On the planet. It is a big rat, but the difference is that uh, they're herbivorous. So they've got these buck teeth. And uh, since they eat marsh grasses, they have caused thousands of miles worth of coastal erosion. Yeah. So we should be eating them instead of eating, you know, factory farm burgers, for example. Makes a lot of sense when you put it that way. Mm -hmm. Something else that there's just billions of species of and, you know, looking for a different protein. I mean, we might as well just get it out there. Bugs are forged to, insects are forged to. Yeah. How can we help people overcome the aversion to eating insects? I mean, saw you've never had a grasshopper or anything, <laughs> have you? I ate a grasshopper on live television. I also ate a cicada on live television. And can I say I was pleasantly surprised? <laughs> Yeah. In a good way, not yeah, a bad way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely good to hear. You know, the biggest challenge, food is one of the biggest challenges because we're so set in the ways that we were raised to eat. So we have established tastes, but we also know through psychological exposure studies that uh, people will change their tastes if they're exposed enough times to a certain food. Sometimes it might take seven or eight times but you keep the exposure up. So like if you have a kid, they don't like to eat vegetables. Well, you know, you don't force it on the kid, but keep on serving it. Keep on having it on the table. Exposure is uh, a huge part of really evolving the culture of eating, which needs to happen because the biggest pandemic we're facing today is not COVID. It's uh, the pandemic of diet related diseases. Why the average person doesn't see it as a pandemic is because we think that it's a uh, a natural state of being to die from diet-related diseases. Oh, well, eventually we're going to be getting heart cancer no matter what. Eventually we're going to be getting dementia or Alzheimer's um, no matter what. Eventually we're going to have cancer, but that doesn't necessarily have to be. And that's what we're not really realizing that if we were to change the way we eat, it could be prophylactic against a lot of these diseases. Exposure is super important uh, to society and just exposing other people to each other in a world where violence and retribution between people from of different backgrounds and ideologies are a big, big problem. So at Mia's in the Woods, we really want to and we really try to have people from all different walks of life, from people who can afford it, who literally fly in for $500 classes a bunch of people who come in for free. Why that's important is because different people, it's like in the cafeteria, you know, at school, uh, when groups of kids, black kids will sit there, Hispanic kids will sit there, the white kids and the Asian kids. We want to mix those kids up. That will help 
um, make us meet our human potential by allowing a diversity of people to, by being exposed to each other, be able to empathize and appreciate and understand each other better. So food is powerful to do that. Yeah. I One of the many reasons why I love doing this show is because I think food and music are kind of unifying uniters oh, yeah. across, across cultures and creeds and ethnicities. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you could tell us what the last menu was at Mia's. I'm trying to envision and connect all the things you're talking about, the, the educational component, the foraging component, and seeing what it looks like on my plate. So for the last few decades, I've been really creating uh, recipes that are inspired by traditional sushi, but is an improvement to conventional approaches. Because when sushi first started, and it's not just sushi, the way people used to eat was eating anything around you. And now uh, it's a internationalist cuisine. We don't know where the food's coming from. We don't know what the impact is. Before you knew the farmer or you were the farmer. You know, there's a time when most of us were farmers here in the United States, or most of our ancestors in the last 10,000 years were farmers. And today, it's a very small percentage of people who are farmers, and they monopolize the entire food system. So I've been doing mostly plant-based, not using conventional types of animals, trying to use uh, sustainably certified seafood and uh, invasive species, uh, many of which uh, we forage or catch ourselves. That's awesome. So I had two boats and uh, shell fishing grounds at Brantford, uh, where we would go diving for all sorts of different types of seaweeds and tunicates and all sorts of marine coastal creatures uh, that people weren't typically eating. I watched you actually on a, a video earlier jumping into some very, very cold water and finding clams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's great. It's truly restorative to, to, to do that and to, to live that way. And uh, that's the way I lived as a kid. I didn't have a boat, couldn't afford a boat or anything like that when I was a kid, but I was always outside and always playing. And now there's been over almost a thousand studies, uh, scientific studies done on the impact of nature on physical, cognitive uh, health, and just overall uh, well-being. Chef Bun, can anyone be a forager? You know, I'm down in Westport, Mm -hmm. and I know it it has its roots in being in a big onion farm. Yeah. I tend to kill plants. I'm getting better. I'm getting better. (laughs) In my 46th and 47th year on this planet, I'm getting better. But can I just go walk in the woods? and? So that's the cool thing about it. You don't need to be walking in the woods for it. There's such a thing as urban foraging, and there's so many green spaces that we have around this country. You can live in the Bronx and find, yeah, plenty of places to forage. There's a bit to know. You have to be sure that the soil quality is up to par, meaning like that it's not contaminated with uh, heavy metals, for example. You can't go and forage along a busy roadway or a highway or anything like that. Uh, There are a a few key things that you have to know, but it's not really that tough. Today, there is uh, fantastic apps that you can download to identify plants. Uh, The one that I have on my phone is Picture This, and uh, I think it's fabulous. And then the other thing is that you have to learn to identify the poisonous plants out there. They're few and far between. And uh, as long as you're not messing around with mushrooms, I think you're pretty fine. I think in the West Coast, there's like hemlock, uh, which is deadly. But uh, around here, the ones that will get you sick, they're easily identifiable. It's definitely uh, a good idea to learn from somebody who knows how to do it and make sure that if they're 
is a poisonous lookalike that you're especially especially careful. You're right. It is pretty fun. You can go in your backyard and find so many fun things, especially around here in Connecticut. I mean, my kids and I go in the backyard. I got garlic chives, we've yeah. got black raspberries, grapes growing. Oh, so man. many fun things you can just find outside. Yeah. Wild strawberries. Yeah. And kids are indoors too much these days. And we all know that kids are on their phone too much and on electronic devices too much. And we need to get their blood moving. You know, we need them to be in the fresh air. One really big study that, that I read uh, out of Europe studied 20,000 people and the impact the outdoors had on their lives. And this was the first study that quantified the amount of time that was needed for it to actually make a difference uh, in your health. Interesting. Yeah. And that was at least two hours a week. And then anything under two hours, they didn't find any sort of effect. Wow. That doesn't seem like a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. It's actually spread over a whole week. That's not a lot of time at all. No, not at all. We were talking about those invasive species a little bit there. Sure. I want to come back to that and talk about some of those invasives that you can, or maybe things that you particularly like to forage and, and are great to eat. Yeah. Uh, in the springtime, invasive Japanese knotweed, one of the most destructive plants on earth. Is that the vine that grows that my wife keeps making me try to kill in our yard? No, the vine is kudzu. Oh, no, uh, no, no. In the south, it's kudzu. There's also bittersweet, which is very, very poisonous. It's deadly if you eat too much of it, and that's a vine. Kudzu, you can make food out of it. Japanese knotweed looks like bamboo and grows along roadsides all over the place, causes billions of dollars worth of uh, property damage every year. Can you eat um, that one? You can eat the young stalks. Yeah, you should experiment with it uh, this spring because you'll love it. You can pickle them, you can saute them. They look kind of like asparagus and they're tender. And you really have to get them in the first few weeks that they're out when you can just kind of snap it, uh -huh. you know, and you can bite into it and it, it's uh, citrusy. Wow, really? Yeah, you can kind of use it like heard of people using it in place of rhubarb. Interesting. The plant contains more resveratrol than grapes, exponentially more. Whoa. And resveratrol is the anti-aging compound that was found in grape leaves and people were just going crazy buying wine. But the reality is like the amount that you needed, you'd have to drink like a lot of bottles of wine. So, per, I'm almost there, seating. Chef. Don't worry. I'm almost there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was my problem too. <laughs> so that's why I moved on to uh, knotweed instead. But you can take those leaves and make green tea out of them as well. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Definitely one of my favorites. And then, man, I'm just crazy about anything that I can find on the lawn. So obviously we don't spray over here. So anything from like sorrel to dandelion, mm -hmm. to plantain, I eat grass, all sorts of different grasses as well. But the only way to eat grass, I mean, can't saute it or make soup out of it or anything is to make a smoothie out of it. And then you get all those fantastic nutrients that the, the other animals are able to get and digest that we cannot. I love it. So what is your thought, hope, dream for the future of sustainable eating plant-based eating and the, the work that you do? Today, we're more scientific than we used to be. So many of us understand uh, the importance of vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals uh, to our health. But really, that stuff is really complex. Um, I've been studying nutrition for years, and there's so much that I just don't understand. And there's so much that scientists don't understand and don't agree upon. The most important thing when it comes down to food is to really enjoy the process of making the food happen and really enjoy the process of making food that's as healthy as possible 
because ultimately we make food, not just like somebody asked me about like sustainability and bogs. And is that the reason why I eat it? Because it's sustainable. Well, yes, but really every single person around the world that eats bugs, other than us environmentalists in America who didn't grow up eating them, don't eat them because they're good for the environment to eat them. They're eating them because they're delicious, right? And with the foraging, yes, it's healthier to do, but we shouldn't do it just because it's healthier. We should do it because it brings us happiness. And it's part of making a healthy meal for ourselves that we need to take care of so that we can also take care of other people with the healthy food that we make too. I got to throw it out there. I know it's a great spot to wrap, but after what you just said, I have to ask, what's the most delicious bug or insect you've ever eaten, chef? Oh my gosh. And, you know, I've been doing eating insects since about 2001 and I still haven't hit the tip of the iceberg on it and probably hesitating for a lot of the pestilent plants like slugs, uh -huh. you know, though I like escargot, uh, you know, it's the, the imagination always gets you. Um, <laughs> the last thing, <laughs> the last thing I did, Marisol did was uh, cicadas. And I would say that the nymphs, the young cicadas before they have their wings or right when they have their wings, but their wings are still kind of not completely developed and they're still really soft. Those are really, really delicious, both raw sashimi style, which we did, and uh, just sauteed. It was uh, nutty and substantial. You know, it's not like eating ants or anything where you're eating something that you can barely taste, you know. I'm excited. <laughs> I want to try this now. You know, when you guys are here visiting with your kids, I got some in the freezer. We'll make some up together. You know, we'll put our heads together and figure out different ways of uh, cooking it. I can't wait, Chef. Thank you, Chef. It was so, so fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Plum. Thank you, Marisol. It's been pure joy to be with you guys. That was Chef Bun Lai. He's created the culinary and educational experience Mia's in the Woods at his home in Woodbridge. You can see what these magical dinners look like. Just look up Chef Bun on Instagram. At Cookin' for Peace. That's Cookin', I-N, for peace. Later in the hour, the 81-year-old forager in Hartford who's had a mushroom named after her. Sounds very cool. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, the founder of the Connecticut Foraging Club. There's a club, everybody. <laughs> I talk with Amy Demers and send our producer out on her first foraging expedition. If you smell this, it has a slight carrot scent. Oh my gosh. And you can actually eat the white flowers too. You can eat them raw or put them in a salad. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. This week, we are exploring wild food and talking with foragers about the berries, plants, and mushrooms they consider prized finds. We want to introduce you to Amy Demers. She's a physical therapist from Wallingford who recently founded the Connecticut Foraging Club. Our lucky producer, Robin, got to forage with Amy one hot morning in August. We'll listen to some of that experience in a bit. 
But first, I sat down with Amy over a Zoom to learn about the club and what motivates its members to sign up for a foraging walk. Amy, thanks for hanging out with us here on Seasoned. Thank you for having me. How much foraging is there in our state? Because, I mean, for there to be an actual club that is sole purpose is to forage, there's got to be a lot out there. Yeah, Connecticut has a ton of stuff. I think all of New England, really. There's a ton of local berries that grow here, tons of mushrooms, different plants. There's like unlimited amounts of things you can find in the wild that you can eat. How long have you been foraging, you know, just you personally and then you with the group? I got interested in mushrooms about two years ago. I just learned about all of the different types of mushrooms that you can eat that aren't really found in stores. So I started eating mushrooms from farmer's markets, but they're very expensive. And then I discovered you could find them in the woods. So I figured I'd learn how to. Um, (laughs) I'd say when COVID started, I really got more interested in plants too. I've been finding like berries in the woods since I was a kid, but I wouldn't necessarily consider that foraging. That's just, those are easy to find. Talk to me about food as medicine. A lot of people are interested in foraging because a lot of foraged foods have medicinal properties. Right. Obviously, you could take like medications that are anti-inflammatory, for example, but a lot of like wild cherries are anti-inflammatory. There's a lot of foods that can be used as medicine. There's also um, certain mushrooms that are considered medicinal, but not necessarily Mm -hmm. edible. So for example, there's reishi mushrooms, which are extremely bitter. So you wouldn't just eat them, but if you dry them and make them into a tea, it's supposed to be very good for you. It's supposed to help with your immune system. That's pretty cool. I had someone make me a latte. They were calling it a latte out of a mushroom. And I was like, I've never had that before. One of my friends is really into the the mushroom coffee. So she's had me try them. I also usually make for breakfast. I make a coffee shake with reishi tea in it. Yeah. A lot of the teas, they don't taste like what you would think mushrooms taste like. And it really does complement coffee well. It was interesting for sure. And they're supposed to be like super healthy and really good for your body. And I don't know. I was still like, I'm drinking mushrooms in the morning. This is crazy talk. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of mushrooms are supposed to have like anti-cancer properties and be really good for your immune system. Let's talk about the Connecticut Foraging Club that you founded. What a great idea this is. How long ago did you start this? How many members do we have? Tell me about it. It kind of started by accident. About a year ago, I started an Instagram that was really just for myself. I just posted mushrooms that I was able to identify that were edible. And people just started following me. And then a few months after, I was looking up to see if there was a foraging club in Connecticut. And I couldn't find one. There's classes, but I couldn't find a club. So I decided to just call my Instagram the Connecticut Foraging Club. And I said, DM me if you want to join. And so I had my first meeting or my first foraging walk in March. And there were about, I think, four people there that I didn't know. And then ever since then, the club's been growing and growing. The largest one, we had about 85 people come. Oh, my God. Which is honestly too big. Wow. (laughs) Ideal, it's like 20 people. I mean, 85 people, is there enough stuff to forage in one area for 85 people? (laughs) It was hard because obviously you couldn't talk to 85 (laughs) people. And if one person found a mushroom, you're not going to pass it on to every single person and describe what it is. But (laughs) yeah, we ended up breaking up into different groups at that point people in the club? Are they foodies? Are they like looking for medicinal stuff? What's their like reason for being a part of it, you think? So I think most people um, are into hiking. And from hiking, they found different plants and different mushrooms, and they were curious. And some people have limited knowledge of foraging, but very few people are like experts. Obviously, some people are into the medicinal properties too. Our last club, we had a lot of people from Europe come, which was interesting. So foraging mushrooms is a lot more popular in Europe than it is in the United States. 
So they had a lot of knowledge of, oh, this is what we'd forge in Italy or this is what we forged in Germany. So that was really interesting. I got to imagine, too, when you're out there foraging, you're looking around and finding all these amazing things, it almost becomes like a Zen moment, like you're super focused in on it. Like it's like a meditation almost kind of. Yeah, I think it definitely makes you appreciate nature, all the little nuances. A lot of people, they'll hike and they won't necessarily pay attention to the little things, which is what I used to do. I used to never really pay attention to the mushrooms and the plants that I hiked by. But once you know that certain things are edible, then you really start to pay more attention. Right. What kind of research goes into this? Because I got to imagine there's just so much information out there and so much bad information as well. Do foragers now have like an app that they can use on their phone or something like that that can help you determine what's safe and what's not? Yeah, so there's quite a few apps, which is a good starting point. And if you're looking at plants, it's not too, too difficult to determine what plant it is. If you're looking for mushrooms, you have to do a lot more research because some mushrooms can be very poisonous. I usually just use Google Photos and it like will search the internet and tell you what plants or mushrooms look similar. It's better for plants than it is for mushrooms. I think there's one called um, Mushroom Identify, and you could take different pictures of the mushrooms, but it's only going to give you an idea. It's not going to be 100% accurate. Um, Before I ate my first wild mushroom, I researched for about five hours and asked some people who were also foragers before I ate it. But then once you spend the time to really look, what are the poisonous lookalikes? How do I know that it's this mushroom, not another mushroom? Then it's easy to identify it the second time. Did you say the poisonous lookalikes? Yeah. So (laughs) usually you want to stay away from the mushrooms with poisonous lookalikes if you're a newbie. Uh, Sounds like a good idea to me. So what are some of the wild plants that maybe you're encountering right now when you're out there and what do you use them for? So right now there's a ton of berries out there, wild black cherries. Usually the berries I'll just snack on. It's usually kind of tedious to pick all the little berries and make something out of it. And I just enjoy eating berries more than I enjoy eating berries in baked goods. A lot of the plants are best in the earlier spring, the ones that can be used in salads and stuff. Ramps are very trendy and popular right now. Those are best in like April. But yeah, right now is a good season for berries and mushrooms are starting to be in season two. What are you most looking forward to finding as a season change, I guess? Like, so you go into fall and winter and spring because you can forage pretty much year round, can't you? Yeah, you can. I haven't done a ton of foraging in the winter. There's a few, like there's woodier mushrooms that come in the winter. Um, You could still get like wild garlic in the winter. But yeah, usually I get most excited once April comes. April to October is there's different exciting things each month that come out. Yeah. And what are some of those things you would find like in October? So usually September and October are the best for finding mushrooms because usually it's a little bit wetter and a little cooler. So a lot of mushrooms like when it's about um, 65, 75 degrees and after it's rained. Yeah. So chicken of the woods can grow like really throughout the whole spring, summer and fall. But a lot of times you get them good when the weather starts to when the temperature starts to drop a little bit. There's some mushrooms that I haven't found yet, but I'm looking for and want to find. I want to be able to find like a lion's mane mushroom, which usually comes out in the fall. Mm -hmm. I've also never found morels. Those usually come out in like April, May. Yeah, those lion manes are so good. Yeah, they almost taste like steak. They're so good. So what's a good day foraging for you? Like, are there some walks where you just don't find anything? And what would you consider a good day as you're out there foraging? Usually you'll always find something. So when I find a mushroom I haven't found before, a a plant I haven't found before that I discover is edible, that's usually the most exciting thing. And then I'll usually go home and try it for the first time. Well, that that sounds like a great day to me. Yeah, I actually have found meitake or hen of the woods mushrooms in my backyard. And I've found chicken of the woods in my garden. 
My mom used to throw it out every year and get annoyed that it kept growing back. And then after I got into mushroom foraging, I was like, wait, that's actually an edible mushroom. And she was throwing it away every year. Those hand of the woods are delicious. I love those mushrooms. The Connecticut Foraging Club, are you guys still accepting new members if people want to join and, and start learning about this? Yeah. So I just have a Facebook group and I'll usually post. I have a walk every three weeks or so. And anyone can go and join and say that they're going to the walk. So it's usually more of like a collaborative experience where people just share their knowledge. Me and a few people in the club, we kind of found that a lot of people have no knowledge at all about foraging that come. So we want to start hosting some classes, too, that are more informational. Ready for some foraging? Amy hosted our producer, Robin Doyan Aiken, on a foraging walk in the woods near her house in Wallingford. Aside from photos and apps, foragers like Amy use their senses, all their senses, to help identify wild food. On this particular walk in the woods, Amy spotted, sniffed, and tasted a dozen berries, plants, and mushrooms, from wine berries to weedy-looking plantain to a rather large coral-like chicken-of-the-woods mushroom. Let's listen to some of their walk. Yes. Usually when you're foraging, you want to go somewhere that has a lot of different environments. So a lot of the berries, they like to be on like the edge of shade and sun. The edge of fields is good to go for berries. Different plants like to grow along rivers, and obviously different ones grow in the woods. So if you're looking to find a variety of species, usually you want to go somewhere with different environments. Also here, this is Queen Anne's lace, which I'm sure you've heard of, which is also wild carrot. The Queen Anne's lace, once the flowers bloom, the root is going to be too woody to eat. So if you can find it before the flowers bloom, in spring, you can dig up the root and eat it similar to cultivated carrots. Um, Does it taste like carrot? Yeah, so if you smell this, it has a slight carrot scent. Oh my gosh. And you can actually eat the white flowers too. You can eat them raw or put them in a salad. Do you want to try it? Sure. Hmm. It almost smells more carroty than tastes carroty, but I yeah. still get the carrot characteristic. So if you want to smell the root, that's very, very carroty. <laughs> Completely. Oh my gosh, this is blowing my mind because I've got all the sensory information that is saying carrot, mm -hmm. but this is just looks like a weed. Yeah. So a lot of plants, you can use the smell to help to identify them. Mm -hmm. So Queen Anne's lace has a poisonous somewhat lookalike called poison hemlock but poison hemlock doesn't smell like carrot, so that's one of the identifying factors. Amazing. Yeah. Some flowers have this little red dot in the middle, so that's another identifying factor. But it not... is so super tiny. I can't <laughs> believe it. I would never have noticed that if you didn't point it out to me. Yeah, not all of the flowers have that, though, so that's just another sign that it's Queen Anne's lace and not poison hemlock. Ooh, good to know. <laughs> Up here, there's going to be some wine berries, which we were talking about invasive species. Wine berries came from Asia, and they're an invasive species here. So usually when you find one wine berry plant, you'll find tons of them. They look like a raspberry, but it's a little more of an orangey red, and they're super, super sweet. They're tasty, but they're actually good to eat because they're invasive. So sometimes they'll outcompete the raspberries and blackberries, which are native to Connecticut. Um, this too, this is, these are autumn olives. You could try it. There's like a little seed inside. It's going to be tart. 
So I'll just take a bite. Or um, pop, you can pop put it in, in my your mouth and just spit the seed out. Oh, okay. But autumn olives are also invasive. So usually when you find one plant, you'll find a lot of them. So it's probably pretty tart right Super now. Super tart. <laughs> when they become a darker red color, that's when they're ripe and they'll be a little bit sweeter, but they'll still be tart. But a lot of people make fruit leather with them. Mm. Um, I haven't done that yet, but my aunt actually introduced me to autumn olives and made some fruit leather and it was delicious. Yeah, I can see how that would be delicious. Two weeks or so, these will be ripe and you could pick tons of them. Mm. So I'll show you, this is the wine berries I was telling you about. So this is the one, they look similar to raspberries. Most people would probably think they're raspberries if you want to try it. Um, it's very, very sweet. It's a more orangey red color. Mm, that's nice. But that's the invasive type of raspberry-like plant I was talking about. We'll come up to the mushroom I was talking about up here in a little bit. So we're gonna find, it's called a chicken of the woods. So that's one of the easiest to identify mushrooms. So if you're a newbie at foraging, you wanna try to look for the polypores. So those are mushrooms with little pores at the bottom instead of gills. The mushrooms with gills, you have to be a little bit more experienced to really identify them because some of those will kill you. So you have to be careful. Yes. <laughs> the polypore mushrooms, most of them are edible. So you don't have to be as careful, I guess. So they're good ones for newbies to start with. And chicken of the woods is pretty easy to identify and there's no poisonous lookalikes. Oh, that seems very safe then. <laughs> yeah. See that big orange mushroom? Wow. Be careful because a lot of this is poison ivy. Okay we can go a little bit closer. So this is the chicken of the woods mushroom. They vary from like a light orange to a bright orange. This one's kind of medium. It grows kind of like a floret, I guess I'd say. If you pick a piece, so this one's nice and fresh. So you see there's no gills at the bottom. If you look closely, there's tiny pores. Kind of doesn't have too strong of a smell. It actually tastes similar to chicken. So it's a great substitute for vegetarians. My sister, she's a good cook, but she actually made fried chicken of the woods and it tasted very similar to fried chicken. It was delicious. So I'd say this is, this probably tastes the most similar to chicken out of any non-meat food. So it's a great food to know for vegetarians. A lot of times chicken of the woods, it gets buggy as with a lot of mushrooms. So it's important to find mushrooms in the perfect stage. Usually you'd want to find them after like a day or two of them growing, because then usually the bugs start to get to them and no one wants to eat a buggy mushroom. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this is, this is in a pretty good stage right now. I'll probably come back and collect it later. <laughs> that was Amy Demers, founder of the Connecticut Foraging Club. You heard her guiding our producer Robin through her first forage. You can forage with Amy too. Just find the Connecticut Foraging Club on Facebook. Recent walks include Spruce Brook Falls in Naugatuck, Southford Falls in Southbury, and Salmon River State Park in East Hampton. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, a celebrity in the mushroom world talks about her eponymous mushroom and what she does with morels when she's lucky enough to find them. Sometimes I just like them sautéed and throw in some scrambled eggs and onion and mm-mm-mm. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Imagine how cool it must be to discover a species of mushroom and then have it named after you. That's exactly what happened to our next guest, 81-year-old Connie Borodenko of Hartford. Chef Plum spoke with her last month. Connie, thanks for joining us here on Seasoned. I feel like I'm super uh, lucky to be talking to a mushroom celebrity. Oh, thank you. I am an amateur, but I'm an advanced amateur. I guess some people would say a citizen naturalist. What is a citizen naturalist? What does that mean? That's a term I haven't heard before. We're the people who find things and then the professionals take over and name them. We're the guys who scout. I like that. So you say you're an amateur, but I mean, you're out there doing this for a very long time. How long have you actually been a citizen naturalist? Well, I did it as a a kid from a time I was a little kid with my grandmother. And then when I found the mushroom club, I learned a great deal more. It was just a totally wonderful thing. So even even though you're saying you're an amateur, this isn't something that's new for you. (laughs) Not new. No, I joined the mushroom club when I was in my 30s and now I'm 81. So it's a while. That mushroom club Connie mentioned is the Connecticut Valley Mycological Society, of which she is a past president. Connie has given many talks on mushrooms over the years and even assists the Poison Control Center whenever they need a consult. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. They'll usually call from St. Francis Hospital. That's incredible. I think it's such a cool thing to know so much about mushrooms. And there's so many different types of mushrooms out there, too. Uh, I I mean, I know chef friends of mine who forage and go and get hen of the woods and chicken of the woods and things like that out there. I mean, there's just so many of them out there. Yeah, there are. I've eaten 120 different species. Wow. Yeah, and I have friends who have eaten more, but that's what I've eaten so far. And I haven't loved all of them. I mean, but there are a lot of nice ones out there. What do you think has been your favorite? And I want to talk about the one that you found too, but aside from that one, which one's kind of been your favorite? It depends on the time of year. Of course, in May, it's morels. And at this time of year, we're looking for everything else. This is the height of the season. Right now is okay. Trumpets are what we all want. There's others, but trumpets are wonderful. You know, one of my favorite mushrooms is the lion's mane mushroom. I love this mushroom so much. I just slice it and I get a nice hot pan with a little bit of butter and olive oil and just sear it really, really hard on both sides and salt and pepper and just eat it with a fork. It's delicious. Sounds wonderful. I wish I found more of them. That's a rare one for me. Let's talk a little bit about the mushroom that you have named after you. I could try to pronounce it, but I think you'll probably do a much better job than I would. (laughs) It's an Amanita borodenkoe. It's an Amanita, which means it's highly unlikely that it has any culinary value. It's probably toxic. The genus Amanita contains more of the poisons of all the mushroom families. Wow. Okay. So we don't take a chance on those things. We just uh, eat what the good ones are and the rest of them, we just admire them. Great advice. So yes, ma'am, I will stay away from the Amanitas. That's for sure. What does this mushroom look like? It's very typical of Amanita because it has a tall white stem, a very fat base, sometimes almost like a cup-like base. And then white gills underneath the red cap. Sounds beautiful. Most Amanitas have a little flex on the top. Did you know that this mushroom was special when you first saw it? Or did you only realize it when you couldn't identify it yourself? Were you trying to find somebody else? I couldn't identify it when I I found it. So I dug down nice and deep, make sure I got all the parts Mm -hmm. of it. Then one of the Amanita 
expert who is Rod Tullis, he identified it. You know, time goes by, they have to check and check, and then they named it after me. And so they named it, they named it after you, which is even, it's even cooler that you have a mushroom named after you now. How amazing yeah, is that? It is amazing. I've found other un, unknown mushrooms before, and for a while they were naming them in numbers, but he named this one for me. How long ago was that that you found that mushroom? I think it was about five years ago. Wow. It takes some time to do the workup. And it takes them time to make sure there's not another one somewhere. And then they get a chance to put a name on it. Gotcha. So what are the mushrooms you look forward to every season? And are there any of those mushrooms that you consider real treats? I know we talked a little bit about trumpets. Are there other ones out there you love? I like the ones you like, too. Hen of the Woods is great because not only do you get a great deal of it, when you find it, you find it. And I can share it with everybody. And I love sharing them. My whole neighborhood is now eating mushrooms that they probably wouldn't have touched with a 10-foot pole five, 10 years ago. (laughs) I would have come to your neighborhood, that's for sure. You're welcome. Um, What about the, as a chef, a morale mushroom, that's a, a very coveted mushroom to have. And you can find them pretty easily when they're in season? Oh, the morels, no. They are not easy to find. Unfortunately, they are built to survive. They look like dead, holy, old leaves on the ground. Mm-hmm. And they're the same color as dead, holy, old leaves on the ground. So you really have to really have to look. They come up in the same place maybe for four years or so. And then you're going to find a whole new space for them. <laughs> Funny how they just kind of disappear. Keep your nose to the ground and keep going. And if you're lucky, you find them. Yes, ma'am. I think I equate it to how a lot of chefs, when they find a great patch of, of ramps, they won't tell anybody where they are. You just kind of go get a, get some of them slowly so they keep coming back every year. I think the same right. thing is the same with some of these mushrooms you find. You don't want to tell everybody where they are, do you? No, you don't. <laughs> and my ramp place, I don't give away either. But unfortunately, they've logged it out. So I don't know what's going to happen with it. Oh, no. Uh, what are some of the things you do with those mushrooms when you find them, like the morels? It depends on how many I find. If I find enough, I'll stuff them and bake them with a nice sauce over them. That sounds great. Sometimes I just like them sautéed and throw in some scrambled eggs and onion and mm-mm-mm. The stuffing them sounds amazing. I like to slice yeah. them and serve them over steak. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Connie told me kids make wonderful foragers, partly because they're so close to the ground. I asked her, what advice do you have for young foragers? First of all, Young people or people just starting out should get a simple book. I love the Audubon Guide, but if you get the Audubon Guide first, you're going to be overwhelmed. Oh, my Lord, there's all these mushrooms. But if you get a simpler book, one that is much more basic and start slow. Also, if you have a mushroom club around you, join it. What do you get out of foraging besides, you know, beyond collecting just mushrooms? Oh, what does it do for you? I've always loved being in the woods, just being in the woods, whether there are mushrooms or ramps or whatever there are, just being in the woods. But I also get some wonderful foods that I otherwise wouldn't have. Um, My grandmother was a forager, so we used to pick milkweed, leeks, dandelions, you name it. And I still pick some of those. I love nettles. Nettles are very good and helpful. They come up rampantly, so there's never a dearth of them, and they're good for you. 
yeah. high in iron. It's, it's a lot of things you can yeah. get out there if you just take the time to walk and, you know, open your eyes yeah. and look around a little bit, right? Even flowers. The daylilies are wonderful. You might even find yourself uh, Amanita uh, Borden. Co- oh, I'm not going to. I was going to try it again, but I, you see, I got halfway through. That's okay. You did well. <laughs> You are a treasure, and we appreciate you, and we're so happy to have you in Connecticut. And I cannot wait to talk to you in the future. I want to hear more about this poison control center calling you. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'll tell you more about that another time. Uh, I've only had one really serious human call, but I get a lot of dog calls. That was really fun, Connie. Thank you. I have really enjoyed those stories. Well, you're very, very welcome. I enjoyed it, too. That was lifelong forager from Hartford, Connie Borodenko. Even though the mushroom named after her is not delicious and toxic, it's still quite an honor. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Talarski. Can I make another fun guy joke? Thanks for listening, everybody. Now let's get outside. See you next week.